The Women in Agile podcast series amplifies the voices of outstanding women in the Agile community. We are dedicated to sharing the wisdom and inspiration our community has to offer by telling our stories, being thought leaders, and having open conversations with our allies. This series is brought to you in partnership from the Women in Agile organization and Accenture Solutions IQ. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Women in Agile podcast series. I'm your host, Leslie Morse, and today we are chatting with Emma McGuigan. Emma has spent her career architecting and delivering technology-enabled solutions to clients in a range of industries. She's had the privilege to work with clients on programs from the cutting edge of innovation to large-scale core solutions. Emma has a deep passion for empowering young people to embrace technology and believes empowerment can come from recovery from failure. Two organizations she supports are STEMETS, which encourages young women into STEM careers, and ORCID, who campaigns to end female genital cutting through programs of social change. The challenges of human rights and female empowerment spur Emma on to provide her skills, expertise, and support for the others who may be able to benefit. Her current day job is as a senior managing director for the Accenture Microsoft Business Group. Thank you very much, Leslie, and thank you for inviting me. I'm delighted to join you. Yeah, I um, remember getting to, to have some exposure to you through a, a leadership development program I was in and um, listening to you talk and being familiar with your work uh, and within Accenture. Um, I knew you would be a great voice for our women in Agile constituency to, to be exposed to. Um, and I just want to kind of cut to the chase, right? Even here in your in your bio, and and obviously through the the nature of work that happens within technology, um, this idea of learning from failure is, is pretty important. And that idea of fail fast or inspect and adapt is really core to agile mindset and agile ways of working. How has that really shaped you, and why do you think that's that's important for people to become comfortable with? I think it's really important that we don't try and hold ourselves up to a standard of perfection, when perfection is just, to me, honestly, slightly insane, when good enough is good enough most of the time. And yet, particularly growing up as a girl, I was reflecting on the education system in the UK. And my son was graduating what they call prep school, which is something they do at 13 in some of the private schools here. And they selected the top 15 students in the year through the exams, and 12 of those students were girls. And yet what the boys are learning when they're not learning to be at the top of the class at 13 is they're learning how to recover. And it's really important that as girls, as young women, and even as old women like me, that we we don't beat ourselves up when things don't go to plan. And instead, we're bold enough to be honest in our assessment about how we've performed and then think about how we can drive a positive change or a positive outcome from it. Rather than thinking of failure as being the end of the line, actually think about how, you, how do you change that into a constructive outcome. Yeah. And listening to you talk about that, it makes me think about, right, what is really the definition of failure? Because I know I often um, find myself in a pattern of holding myself to a standard that is potentially far above what other people may hold me to. And so my definition of failure versus maybe I'll call it the general public around me might be very different. Have you navigated some of those same things? Oh, yeah, definitely. And I think... I have become quite self-analytical 
but not in a way over the years I've managed to turn that into something which has a more positive stance on it so we go into let's say we're presenting so a little later today I have to present to David Rowland and his um, global exec committee and uh I have a plan I've prepped. I've prepped with Paul Doherty, with others. I couldn't be more ready. But I know I'll come off that call and I will be thinking about all the things I didn't do, I didn't share. And over time, I will turn that into what what went really well? What were the outcomes I really wanted to chase? If you focus on outcomes, if I focus on what's the three things I really want to get across to David this afternoon, then it can be much more successful because you can go, well, all right, I didn't tell that story. I didn't make that point. But actually, I think I was pretty successful on these three key outcomes. And that's where you need to kind of give yourself a break because if you were able to achieve the outcome you wanted, then regardless of whether you gave exactly the the, the, the narrative that you'd practiced and rehearsed or you'd you know, expressed yourself exactly the way you wanted – you did well enough. And I think that's where we need to give ourselves a bit more of a break. Yeah. I really like that shift to outcomes focus. There's definitely some brain retraining that goes into to getting there. As you went through that shift on your own, do you remember some of the things that you did to kind of retrain your brain to go towards that outcome, more focused approach? Well, so this goes back a long time now, and my because my eldest daughter is now 15. But when I was on maternity leave with her, when she was a tiny baby, I was caught in the stress of having a new baby for the first time and having no clue what I was supposed to be doing. And then thinking that, well, I wanted to go back to work because it was always my ambition to go to work, but how could I possibly go back to work if I couldn't stay in the office all day until my to-do list was done? Because obviously, once you have children, you have to go home, you have to pick up from a nanny or a school or whatever. And um, I started to go through an intellectual process, a reasoning process of going, what is it that's really important? And when I did get back to work and my, my husband said, just go and just see how you get on. And if it doesn't work, we can change. What I did was I, I started to be much more critical of how I spent my day. And we, we are quick to accept a meeting. We're slow to decline a meeting, but are we are we good at assessing whether we were productive in that meeting? Did we share something nobody else could share? Did we chair it, but actually the person that works for us, it could have been a good growth opportunity for them? Did we learn something, but actually we could have learned it through some other channel in a more efficient way? If you start to be critical about how you're spending your time and you start to, in in, in hand in hand with that, think about what it is you're trying to achieve, what's really important then slowly you can start to retrain. I often think that if I hadn't had the pressure of being a new parent, I don't think I would ever have got there. But what that did for me is it really helped me to focus on for outcome. And I, was, I spent 10 years after that working a four-day week, and I would never have been successful in that had I not forced myself to really think about a shift in how I was performing, how I was measuring my own success let alone how others perceive me. And I think sometimes we're our own worst enemy. So we need to give ourselves a break, focus on what's what's really going to, what's the difference we're driving? Because nine times out of 10, we do a pretty good job. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. And a lot of this is sort of hitting home 
for me, um, as well as I think about some of the growth that I'm going through on my own right now. So um, regardless of whether or not other listeners need to hear this, like it, it's working for me in the moment. So I love that. The, um, <laughs> the, uh, you know, the idea of being intentional and kind of practicing discernment on how we spend our time makes me think of that phrase, you know, um, or that inquiry around, are you living life or is life living you? Yes. Yes. Um, and it, has, has this shift permeated into other areas of your life? Because I really imagine, right, with the type of role you have, that, that, has got lots of pressures, lots of demand. So if you're involved in organizations like STEMETS and ORCID and finding other ways to give back, you've got to be really intentional about designing balance to have time to do all of this. What are some of those keys there? You know, I, I, I get asked this a lot. And the root of all of this is these driving change is really important to me as a person. And I'm really passionate about us striving for genuine equality, where people get to choose what it is they want to do, where people are given the chance to fulfill their potential in whatever that means to them in the world they live in. And to do that well, we need to open doors to people and we need to help drive and, and change some of the social norms that we're so happy to adapt because it's always ever, we, all we have ever known. And that's so important to me. I'm so passionate about it that it becomes easy to find the time to do it. But if you're passionate about finding time to do something, and honestly, that doesn't matter whether it's whether it's me volunteering with Orchid or whether it's spending time watching the TV with my kids, because actually that's really important to me too, or whether it's having to drive them to soccer practice. Yeah. It's about really thinking about what's important to you and making understanding in that world that you draw lines on it when you do that you have the energy to do the other things which you're perhaps less excited about you know any one day at work there's some stuff we love doing and there's some stuff we generally can't really be bothered doing but we have to do if you focus on the upticks in the day it's easier to be more efficient doing some of the other stuff and I think that continual sort of reflection on how your day has been how efficient have I been today what could I have done differently and then thinking oh I really want to do this thing tomorrow I really want to go to this talk or I want to go and help and do a podcast or I want to go and I want to be at my kids sports day or what or I want to go train for a marathon or whatever it is you really want to do when they when we do the things that make us feel good we're more efficient at doing the other stuff and then you can find the time to, to really devote to those things that matter. And I think it's really important we keep passion in our life. Maybe that's my summary, Leslie. Yeah, no, and I think that's great. I worked with a coach once that um, talked about having enough self-awareness to understand, and the way he phrased it was to understand that um, your yayas are met. Right. If you're always kind of having your yayas met, then it makes the rest of uh, life and maybe some of the more challenging and more difficult things that you don't really want to do. You have the fuel and inner energy to kind of get through them. And it gives you inner strength, right, too. I think when you're when you can think about the richness of your life and you don't think about it in terms of these are the hours I work and these are the hours I don't work. And if you just think about your life as a continual series of experiences then and actually I do what 
I, I definitely blur the lines, right? But I also have some red lines I never cross. But the blurring of the lines, and I, I absolutely accept this gets easier the more senior you get because you have more autonomy. We we can we can find it's easier to find that balance. And uh, frankly, my my iPhone gives me a freedom of location, which is just a privilege that you know people ten or fifteen years ago didn't have. And so, I think it gives us this opportunity to to really mix up and think about our lives as a as, as an as an entirety and how do we spend our entire lives and what's the contributions that we're making and then we feel great about that whereas if you bring it down into too many micro elements within it you can get it's quite easy to make you to become very critical about each of the pieces rather than thinking about it as a whole so I think think about the whole I like the word ya ya really thinking about what's giving you energy because because if you're if you're feeling motivated, we we bring that to everything we do. Yeah, actually, I think while small, the the neatest thing you said in that was this idea of my my iPhone is really a gift because it gives me that freedom of mobility. And so often we look at technology and our mobile devices as, oh, and work just follows me everywhere. I can't get away from it. But there really is that gift of mobility that people before us um, you know, didn't get to enjoy as much because, you know, I do want to cut out, right, maybe and, and do something in the middle of the day. I really do get to take my work with me and be engaged in something, right, if I need to be somewhere else. Um, and that, that really is cool. So I, I love that framing. I know, and not feel guilty about it because we all know we're going to do that late night call, that early morning meeting. So never feel guilty about it. It's about your life as a whole. So let's kind of, we're sort of starting in a thread towards kind of some, I think, insights and and ways to think about being successful as many people in general, not just women, right? Have high pressure jobs with demands, early morning, late night, technology, you know, following us around everywhere. You know, as you think about your success specifically as as a strong female leader, what are important things that have, have shaped you and kind of become some of your philosophy around what's important? That's a really tricky question, Leslie. <laughs> I think um, I I have a need to really go back to my go back to basics. When I go into a new role, so I went into a new role at the start of this calendar year in um, leading the taking on the role to lead the Accenture Microsoft Business Group. And I've never worked with Microsoft products before. Um, I had been to Seattle before, so at least, you know, I had a little bit of an idea about what that was like. Um, but you go into these roles and, you you know, you're working at another level within the firm and you have new bosses again. And, and the thing that gives me the confidence to go into that is, to, is the things that I know I bring, which, which I can always anchor to. So I bring a competency around technology, around technology architecture. I bring a ability to talk to people and understand. I bring a strength. So my prime strength is learning. So I listen and I learn and I'm okay with being quiet. And these things that you bring, they're like your core. They're like the things that ground you every day. 
and help you make it out the front door, knowing that no matter how big the challenge for that day, you're anchored to your own inner core capability. When we can do that, it helps us to bring everything else. It gives us the courage to step into a role, a meeting, an experience, which we're kind of scared of, but we can take, we know what we're bringing. And we know that we've got that confidence, that voice to be heard in that space. And it gives us the courage to step in and speak up. I think the second thing then is you really need to think about how you're going to lean in because it's one thing to turn up. So that stepping in the room might have been the hardest thing, but there's no point in stepping in the room if you're not going to lean in and contribute and show your voice and, and make sure you're heard. And I think, again, remembering somebody gave you that role because they believed you were the best person to do it. And it yeah, it's funny. Matter. We often forget that. <laughs> yes, we do forget that. And then we say things like, oh, I think they only gave it to me because I'm a woman. They still gave it to you, even if you were, that was the final choice. They gave it to you because they thought you could do it. So be heard because people trusted you could do it. And then my final thing is they wanted you. They didn't want you sounding like everybody else in the room. They wanted you for being you with your voice. So be, have the confidence to be genuinely Emma in that room. And this is really hard. So I, I don't mean to trivialize any of this. And my, my kind of other thing I, I do is I like to run and I like to be in the fresh air. I like to see the sky. And uh, for anybody who knows me well, knows I really, when I travel, I religiously train every morning because it makes me feel like I had a little bit of space each morning, even if it's only for 20 minutes, that was my space to clear my head. And that's a really important thing for me because it makes me feel like I'm going into the day, owning the day my way and not just falling into a, a travel schedule or a meeting schedule. So find your 20 minutes that's helping you really have the power to be you every day. Yeah. Um, and I, I love that you give that sort of advice around finding the time and, and that yours happens to be exercise. I know that uh, in the times of my life, right, where I've been the most disciplined around an exercise me- regime, I really do think that it's t- almost to some extent with this like work not even work-life balance, but just healthy life balance, making that time to invest in the health of your body and exercising it is a reboot of your brain and sort of your emotional stamina in a really important way that especially if you're a traveling consultant can be really hard to maintain the discipline of. Yes, Um, I agree with that. Just as like they say, sleep is important for all of those things, right? Moving our bodies and sweating, I think is another thing that it's, it, it's easy to end up cutting out just because of everything else going on. So I, I love that that's sort of part of your ritual. Very much so. Very much so, especially great. when I'm on the road. Excellent. So th- there are a bunch of other threads that I feel like I could pull in that discussion, but I want to make sure as we think about this idea of you know, women in agile and you know, the equality and diversity things that we were dealing with globally, right, are taking on all sorts of different shapes. But in conversations I've had with you before, I've heard about sort of your stance and your opinion on the role of women's groups, um, where they are now, the function that they play, 
where they might go in the future and want to make sure we have some time to dig into that. So um, I'll kind of go back to one of the first things I ever heard you say in, in a small group discussion where I was with you is that you, you imagine a future where we won't need women's groups anymore. Um, and that really just was like, ooh, I want to learn more about that and, and what shaped her opinions there. So I'd love for you to share some of that with, with our listeners. You know, I um, I grew up, Leslie, as, a, as the youngest of three girls. I had parents, and particularly my father, who believed we could be anything we wanted to be. We never actually had a, I never grew up with a notion of what boys did and girls did. Um, which is kind of, I realize now, n- not common, but to me, it was all I knew. And yeah, um, there's definitely privilege in that. Yes, there is privilege. There's privilege and ignorance, which is an interesting, an interesting observation, right? But mm-hmm. I, and I, I did an engineering degree. I was one of the 5% in the year, you know, it, but it was funny because it never really bothered me. I never really thought about it. And, um, when I was a consultant in Anderson Consulting, as was, we were invited. I was the only non-manager invited to join this new women's network. And I went, oh, why do we need that? And I went to this meeting because I thought, well, I'm going to go to this meeting because there's lots of people more seen than me. And so it's a great place to network, I thought to myself, and meet these other women <laughs> who, who were slightly elusive to me. And I went along and they were all at a point where they were feeling the isolation. They were feeling the isolation for a number of reasons. One is they were now at that manager level running teams. They would find that their peer group was majoritively all men. Their teams were majoritively all men. And they were finding it harder to be successful. They were finding they were more isolated. They were finding they were more different because it was less just about their core skill. It was about their ability to lead and and that was that was proving a challenge. And the other key factor that weighted on top of that is they were also in their early 30s. And so they were thinking about uh, becoming a parent and how, how would that work? And did that, you know, because it, there was an unspoken belief in the office that somehow you couldn't be uh, a successful mother and a successful manager. And it was it was just the way the world was in in, in the late 90s. And um when I and I thought, well, this is interesting because, and then of course, I like to think about everything and I intellectual, and I and I looked around me and I realized how all my work friends, almost without exception, were men, and you suddenly start to realize that you're living in this world that isn't normal. Well, I now have three kids. I have a 15 year old daughter and I have two boys, and they are so wise to the notion of equality in a way that I had never even thought about until I was in my mid 20s, and they have this discussion and this openness. And they recognize where they're different. And they also recognize where things need, even though they might be different, there is opportunity for all. And they learn this at school. They discuss it at school. They discuss it, obviously, at home. And they discuss it with their friends. And this is the gift of of where we are today and of social networking to open the doors up to this discussion much earlier. Now, we also know that girls and boys, but I particularly focused on girls, self-select out of things because they think it's not right for them because they've never seen any role models who do that. And I remember about 10 years ago, somebody said to me, how on earth did you have your career? There could have been no women in technology. And I was like, 
well, I just did it because I was good at it and I liked it. And it's interesting. Well, what, what is it not to like? And I, this concept of role model had never really obstructed my early thinking. But of course, it was bred on that background of my dad just going, do what you like. You can do whatever you want to be. You can be whoever you want to be. Yeah. And, and that was really what prompted me to get involved with STEMET because I actually, I didn't think my career was exceptional. I just thought I'd done some, been involved in an industry that's really interesting and I've done quite well in it and that other girls should want to be a part of that too. And somehow we were closing the door to them. We weren't, we weren't paying them enough of what they, what they, what they deserve to understand the opportunities that sit there. But my goal, Leslie, and this is why you asked the question, is that this is a point in time. We shouldn't need to continue to have to do this because when you think that an 11-year-old boy can be speaking about the need for equality across gender, race, and religion, that's such a world away from where we were that that I I remain optimistic that in in, in the generations Mm -hmm. to come, we will have true equality because doors are open to everybody. And I realize it's a little naive of me to make a bold statement like that. But if we don't make the bold statements, we're never going to get there. Yeah, no, I I, I absolutely believe that's true. And I, I love this idea of the, you know, role model, right? Because given the way equality and, and women showing up in in industry, for lack of a better term, has evolved over the past, you know, 50 to 75 years, right? There are plenty of right generations of women that had zero role models of women in the workforce, right? Yeah. And then as we look at that trajectory, right, the more and more those of us today continue to pursue into you know, new industries and new careers and, and, and bringing more equality in the day to day, there will be right. The next generation of women that don't think about there. Well, there wasn't female role models in this because we've had the pioneers now. Um, and it just, I never thought about the, the absence of role models and that being a, a, a way that shaped part of this, this story is we'll go kind of back and, and tell it in history. So if we go right fast forward to a place where we don't really need these women's groups, right, using kind of quotation fingers in the way that we have them now, what are things that you think are critical towards getting us to that future state? Uh, well, I really think we need to we need to we, we, we need to drive change through everybody. And this is now becoming very accepted that men need to change and women need to change because we also make the same assumptions of women that men make of women. And I will give you an example of this. I get asked to speak a lot about at women's events about being a woman in tech. And I, I like to keep a few themes running because it gets a bit boring. People are like, just talk about your career. I'm like, no, it's a bit boring. It's a bit boring for me anyway. Um, because how do you keep it fresh? And so I went through a, a, a period a few years ago of talking a lot about language And in the UK, and by definition, actually a lot of the West, including North America, in the UK and actually in North America and a lot of of, of Western culture, we have built business hierarchies which were modelled on traditional military hierarchies. And the language that goes with those hierarchies comes from military language. So we talk about driving to 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 make that goal we talk about being in the trenches but 
you know, we got it done and we made it out the other side. And um, when we hear a woman using language like that, we tend, we subconsciously think she's a bit of a bitch. And men and women think exactly the same. And it's really important we know that because if we, we know a lot about subconscious bias and knowing subconscious bias is about being able to address it. I was quite shocked when I realized men and women thought the same. And sometimes when we think women are harshest on women, I don't think we're harsher. We're just as harsh as the men because we, we're driven by the same social norms. So what do I think we need? We need today to have a partnership of men and women driving change across the way our traditional hierarchies have worked about our traditional assumptions around behavior and language so that we become we become more focused on the outcome somebody drives the outcome somebody I'm still using the word drive the outcome that they can create as opposed to whether they're like us but at the same time as women we need to give ourselves a break and we need to have support of people who go through the same struggles we go through. And if you're in a minority group, which is less than 30%, people make assumptions about you. And you need to share that pain sometimes. So as well as that partnership, I think we need a sisterhood. And I think we should be shameless about it's okay to have a group of women getting together to share experiences because they're not going to be the same experiences the men go through. And part of driving to that nirvana where we all get to choose equally and all doors are open is about accepting we need a support network along the way. And I don't think it matters how we channel that, but we need that sisterhood to go, did this ever happen to you? God, yeah. And you, you just get to vent a little, you get to laugh a little, maybe cry a little, and it just makes you stronger. And we shouldn't beat ourselves up on that either. Yeah. And as there's, um, I've kind of got kind of a little goosebumps thinking about, right, some of the best moments I've had, whether it be at women in agile gatherings or just even with, right, great female colleagues that I have, when you really do just get to, to celebrate and kind of lean in and have those kind of conversations and it sisterhood is a, a really great way of, of describing it. Um, and so I love thinking about women in agile, not only, um, that way, but, but other groups that I'm a part of as well. It's our support network, right? <laughs> yeah, it absolutely is. It absolutely is. The, um, other thing that I think was really interesting that you talked in there about was this idea of language. Um, and you know, you started off around, you know, thinking about, you know, failing fast and having the, you know, awareness to really focus on the outcomes and maybe not all of the things that you didn't do and didn't accomplish. And, um, you know, part of designing your life around, you know, getting the balance and time for your kids and time for work and time for outreach, right? The, the discernment to choose how you spend your time. Um, and lots of this other stuff all, always has this undercurrent of really be, being intentional and being aware of these kind of micro choices we make throughout our day. And I think language is one of those ones that's really hard because language patterns are established so early for us. 
Um, and we just, you know, even like you talked about using the word drive, right. And, you know, this kind of more male lens and kind of, you talked about the militaristic lens of some of the language that we use. Um, there's this thing, right. Nonviolent communication, right. I find myself that, that, phrase, you know, kill two birds with one stone. I'm like, well, I don't want to kill two birds as it is, right? How about feed two birds with one hand? Um, but the, the more you bring to consciousness, the words we use, the more you realize how some of the things we say are just kind of ridiculous and probably don't create the type of environment and culture that we're really looking for. Do you notice this idea of language, right? In, in other aspects of your life and in the words you do and don't choose? Uh, yes, uh, definitely. And now consciously, because it's like anything, when you start to study something and you, you, you create awareness and you reflect a lot more on how you use language, on how you behave. Um, language has been a big one for me as is body language. I think body language is much overlooked. Um, there's a, I've asked myself on a number of occasions over the years, when you're in a meeting and you speak up and nobody seems to listen and you're like, okay, what went wrong? Because I don't think it's my point. What went wrong? I'm doing something wrong. And you maybe realize you're leaning back from the table or, and so your presence, your presence isn't being felt in a room or you have sat taking notes for the rest of the meeting so if you have diminished your position in the room to a note taker, even if you're the most senior person in the room. So I think it's really important that we're reflecting on how we are presenting ourselves. And that goes for the way we physically position ourselves and also the way we, we, we communicate and talk. I I like to listen to people in a meeting. I like to work out where the power sits, who the influencers are, who's just got a lot to say but not much content. I like to watch all that play out. And there are there have been times I've done that to a fault because it's very difficult to come in late in a meeting and really drive you know give the contribution and the influence and that that you want. And also the longer a meeting it goes on for it's harder and harder to contribute. But if you can practice doing, if this is your nature, and it is my nature to sit and listen and be a little bit quieter, then actually you have time to really formulate what you want to say and have maximum impact. And you can bring language and you can bring your body position and you can make your point and everybody's like, whoa, where did that come from? And suddenly you, you have more than just a voice in the room because you're the one that made the best comment on the day. And, and I, you know, really think about how you work in a meeting um, so that the, the, the stereotypes we all hear about how the woman says it and then the man says it and he gets credit don't apply to you. So I really think this is about maximizing your own presence, about using language that's crisp, and precise and taking time to think about what you wanted to say rather than just vaguely knowing what you want to say and just talking a lot and talking too quickly and not using your intonation and the power and all that we have we can bring and I really encourage everybody actually to really reflect on the combination of language and um, body language and 
also action, particularly if you're really trying to increase your influence and your position in a room. It's very, very easy to give power away and give it away unknowing, like thoughtlessly, I would say. Yeah, that's great. Um, and so inspiring, just the, the way that you say that and with the conviction. Um, I want to build on that power. Any sort of final inspiring thoughts and comments you want to listen, uh, leave with our listeners today? Um, yeah, I'm going to tell you a story. I'm going to tell you a story about the first time I was a cow. And I, um, I had gone to do uh, help fix a broken delivery at a client. It was, um, it was a bit messy, but it was by no means the biggest problem ever in the world. But it was all about coordinating across multiple parties. And uh, we got the delivery done. There was a great team. They were 98% of the way there. There was a bit of politics needed manhandling, which was really what I came in to do, although I didn't realize that at the time. And um, after we'd gone live and we were in a stable state, the CEO of the client asked me to stay on. And I was like, well, I'd love to stay on, but I'm not sure you have a role. And he said, well, I, I appreciate that thought, but will you stay for a month? And here's a project you can do for me. And during that month, the Cal resigned and the CEO asked me to replace the cow. And of course, I had come from 15 years of doing delivery and I, I was a bit like, well, I need to ask Accenture if that's okay, but, but, but I don't really know what it means to be a cow, but if you want me to do it, great. And I'm always up for a challenge as most of us are, and that's why we work here. And, um, and so we, of course, of course, Accenture said, if that's what the client wants, ever go and be the cow and let, you know, we'll give you lots of support and help, which they did. Um, and uh, one of those moments when you're massively out of your depth and you have to remember what you bring. And, and I remember one of my first meetings when I was officially in role with the CEO and I had prepped all these things, all these different, should I talk about this and that and this agenda and that agenda? And I'd come up not long been on a training where like always go in and talk about your agenda. And, and I went in with my notebook and I had all these notes written in my book to prepare and I opened my notebook up. And I looked at this list and I looked at him and I put my pen, took my pen off my book and I turned the page to a blank page and I wrote, his name was Ray, and I wrote Ray and Emma at the top of the list. And he went, what do you want to talk about? And I said, well, I just want to listen to you. And it was the most phenomenal thing. And I I realized in that moment that if I was going to go with my list of 20 things that I had prepared, I was going to get nowhere with him. Because he'd asked me to be the cow because he trusted me and he wanted to talk to me and he wanted me, he wanted to co-create with me and work out how we could do something different. He didn't need my list of 20 things. And in fact, I then shut my book altogether. And, um, and we just talked because you take the book off the table. You're not taking minutes. It's a conversation. When we can get our relationships with people and it doesn't matter whether they're our clients, if you can take it from a work environment to a conversation like you would have over the breakfast table in a coffee shop, in a bar, you shift the dynamic. So all of you, I say, I'm sure you all have friends. You'll all meet your friends somewhere. You all have family. You'll all spend time with your family. Have the courage to have a conversation. Use the language that you use when you're at home or in the coffee shop or the bar and just bring that human side of you to bear because that's when we're at our best. It's when we can just talk. 
directly to people as other people and we and, and shake off some of the process because sometimes we wear it as too big a badge. So that's my story. Oh, I love that. And I think that is the, the perfect way to wrap this conversation. Emma, thank you so much for, for chatting with me today and, and, and being part of the Women in Agile conversation. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you and for having me. You're welcome. And thank you for listening to this episode of the Women in Agile podcast series. It is brought to you in partnership with the Women in Agile nonprofit organization and Accenture Solutions IQ. We hope you've learned something new and invite you to tell a friend or coworker about the podcast. Please go online to womeninagile.org to learn more about our initiatives and find more inspiring podcast conversations. Thanks for listening to this Women in Agile podcast episode. Find more inspiring conversations by visiting womeninagile.org slash podcast, checking out the podcast series on iTunes, or visiting your podcast application of choice. If you have an idea for a topic, speaker, or feedback on an episode, please reach out to us via email through podcast at womeninagile.org.